Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day and welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1364 entitled Minor Series. <laughs> Our podcast title is New Pod Mountain. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. I feel like I should have done this carefully prepared Mandarin introduction. <laughs> Off you go then. <laughs> well, Jan actually is Chinese, so ha! <laughs> close enough for government work. <laughs> All right, today on Zero G, amongst other things, we mm-hmm. are going to talk about the new SBS miniseries, A New mm. Gold Mountain, yep. which is dropping episodes each week as mm-hmm. we go. Mm-hmm. And you can also see it on SBS On Demand. Now, This is a historical show, Mm. and it's a historical detective series, more or less. (laughs) Yes, I think it's much more about the time and place and the relations between the characters with a bit of murder thrown in. I think, yeah, the setting is definitely what's the big draw card here. Actually, I'm not sure how many murders are in this. It seems like at least a couple. So we're in that classic sort of trope where you have one murder and then – there has to be another. I, and I think there will be conflict and drama to unfold from what I can gather from what I've seen so far. It is nice to do something a bit closer to home because we've been in space and all kinds of places and I'm glad we're mm. taking a look at a more local series. <laughs> and we've done so many South Korean shows. It's true. I've, I've pushed my own agenda. <laughs> and, no, it's obviously great too to do something, an SBS original, which is cool. But, yes, you're right. Don't think I haven't noticed that. That's all right. (laughs) South Korea punches well above its weight in science fiction and fantasy and Mm -hmm. historical dramas, as we have found. This one is from Australia. It is called New Gold Mountain. I feel like I'm harking back to my Chinese ancestry here. I have heard that phrase, New Gold Mountain, Mm. a lot. And when I was a kid, my dad used to rap it on about it. And I never really kind of click now it's up front at the start of the credits Mm -hmm. (laughs) so they basically just tell you that gold mountain was the name for california and the gold rushes in the 19th century yeah and when that played out and it was new gold mountain in australia yeah now i know (laughs) (laughs) my eyes open i feel like a star trek metaphor okay so it's created by peter cox he's also the co-producer and there's lots of other producers as well. But he is known for writing as well as creating shows. I worked on This Is Not My Life mm-hmm. and The Pretender. No, not that Pretender. Mm-hmm. Genre fans will know of another one where there was a, a character who was pretending to be various people. That takes uh, yeah, that's a while ago now. The Insider's Guide to Happiness and also The Same Thing But For Love. Mm-hmm. And one telly movie called The Astronauts. 
<laughs> so okay. absolutely nothing that I've seen before. No, same. <laughs> the other main producer, I'm more familiar with their work, Elisa Argenzio worked on Underbelly, Romper nice. Stomper, Dr. Blake and Wolf Creek, the series. Yeah, very mm-hmm. solid. So you got a bit of procedural expertise there. Yeah. And as we said, this is a minor series, as in gold mining, mm-hmm. and it's set in 1857 or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of dating it from a historical incident that they mention in it. And it's set on the diggings in yes. this particular case. I think it's Ballarat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Since it's been filmed at Sovereign Hill. Yep. That's just such an amazing setting for any of these sorts of shows. Yeah. And they've leaned in. They've definitely thrown a lot into the production as well. So we're very much getting the sense of, you know, being out there on the fields, that kind of era of Australia at the time. They've really kind of tried to do it right, and I appreciate that. Now, I feel that we're very much in Deadwood territory. Mm-hmm. But we are also in the territory of a particular Australian series from 1974 until 1976. There's not a lot of episodes of the show, but it was called Rush. Okay. And again, not that Rush, not the more modern police procedural Australian television series. But this was actually a Goldfield series. It featured a character of a, a trooper, basically a policeman on the gold fields, mm-hmm. and he was played by John Waters, who we have actually interviewed on Zero G wow. a long time ago. Yeah. So this show had this magnificent setting, and and you know this was in that era back in the seventies when you felt that Australia just did such great historical series. Mm, yeah. But they also felt very contemporary. Yeah. In the, yeah. In the yeah. times. Anyway, Rush had this great theme. It was done by George Dreyfus, composer, mm-hmm. who has a lot of credits under his bow, including a lot of television shows and series. Like he was the guy to go to uh, Waterfront back in 1984, The Fringe Dwellers, Dimbula, the movie from mm-hmm. 1979, Power Without Glory. Now there's a a big mini-series from the past. And if this does not get your blood pounding, (laughs) then you do not have blood. And that's okay because there are many sorts of representative species that listen to (laughs) zero-G. So if you are one of the (laughs) fang-enhanced, this one will bring a rush to your blood. Hi, this is Matthew Riley, creator of the Scarecrow and Jack West Jr. series. Welcome aboard the Zero G Heli Carrier on 3 R F M Semper Sci-Fi. Yeah, George Dreyfus there mm. with the theme from the 1970s Australian gold mining series, Rush. Wow. <laughs> Perfectly described there in its title. I seem to remember that that's basically a reworking of a sea shanty called 10,000 Miles Away, Hmm. which comes from, oh, way back, like uh, the 18th century. Wow. So, yeah. Now, we are talking about the series New Gold Mountain. Mm Mm-hmm. Now on SBS On Demand, it's a four-part miniseries, each episode about one hour. Four episodes which is actually a very mini, mini series, isn't it, when you think about it? A nice contained story, though. I think if they've got a clear vision of what they want to do, it's nice to have just a really concrete, rather than something that drags on. I think it Mm. says a lot that we should get some pace and plot going on. Yeah. I've seen a few episodes of it so far. Mm -hmm. I've enjoyed it. It opens up with a woman 
weighing yourself down with rocks mm-hmm. and then walking into a, a river or a lake, mm-hmm. yeah. obviously bound for her own destruction. And we take a while to find out what has happened there. In fact, that's kind of the mm. big MacGuffin, so it won't give too much away there. But okay, it's set in the Victorian diggings back in the gold rush. There are 10,000 Chinese labourers and miners in the area mm-hmm. and shopkeepers and herbal medicine fellows and everything. There's an entire civilization kind of lifted up from California and other mm. places and yep. dropped down there. And, of course, we've a constant influx of immigrants who've come straight from China to yeah. there. There's lots of things happening in this large Chinese mining camp. Now, this is where it differs from Rush. Yeah. But not perhaps entirely from Deadwood. <laughs> and uh, we're mostly involved with the Chinese camp yeah. in this story. Now, fresh in the minds of everybody is the Buckland anti-Chinese race riot, mm-hmm. which happened uh, in northeast Victoria on the 4th of July in 1857. Now, This is one of, obviously, the big themes of the series. So we've got racism. Yeah. So we've got racism against the Chinese. Mm -hmm. We've got racism against the Indigenous Australians. Mm -hmm. We've got racism against the Irish. (laughs) Yep. Throw that in there too. Yep, we've got a big old melting pot of racism. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. It's not just a race. It's a marathon. Yeah. And I think that's what is interesting about the premise of this show is that it is very much meant to tell the Chinese perspective of that period. You know, I did learn about a little bit about the gold rush and the Chinese involvement in the racism when I was in school, but I do think that it's an important story to be told and it is something that could be told well. And I do like that we've got Chinese protagonists and we've got very key plot points and story that's being moved along by these non-white characters. And I think it's great that we have a show like this being made. Mm, I think it's timely. Mm-hmm. I actually don't know when they filmed it. How did they manage the the pandemic? Maybe it was in the can before. I don't know. I'm not sure, yeah, but I think it's been in the works for at least a couple of years. I was also pleased to see that the director for the first episode was Corey Chen, who is an Asian director as well, and I know Benjamin Law was involved in writing the series, and he's a writer and cultural commentator that I really like. So we've got a lot of involvement of people who can speak to some of these themes through a lived experience, which I also think is good to have their involvement. Mm. Not only is there racism, there is sexism, mm. there is classism. Yeah, yep. <laughs> That's just about every ism you can possibly imagine. I mean, it is this. a distinct time and place. I mean, and it is sad, I guess, that some of these things haven't changed that much. But, um, mm. yes, I'd say we're looking at a bit of a different experience back then for sure. What was I saying earlier on before the show? I was like, oh, Rob, this show is so um, dire. And you said drama is people being mean to people. Period drama is dead people being mean to other dead people. You like that? (laughs) It's very true. And, I mean, these are all Mm. important conflicts to discuss, but, yes, they're unpleasant. And that's the whole point, right, that it's it's an unpleasant period of history. And it's interesting, our resources – mental and physical, a bit down, a bit downgraded by the pandemic, he says. Yeah, cheerily. put it mildly. Yep, yep. Yeah. I actually find myself confronted by this kind of thing more. Agree. You know, I find it harder going. I totally agree. And I think, you know, we've definitely 
on Zero G, we've watched so much content over the years that's pandemics and dark stuff and different things. But you're right. Sometimes when you come up against series that are tackling some really heavy things, I think mm. our, our reserves are just a bit low at the moment and we just need some of the light more than dark sometimes. Yeah. Still, that is the point of this show and we will cleave to it. Yep. We are troopers here on Zero G. We're not traps. No. <laughs> We're not the traps. Get your mining license out, <laughs> lady. All right. So this particular Chinese mining camp, well, mm-hmm. it's having troubled times because some of the miners are decamping because the gold seam is running out. Yep. And they're actually doing, it looks to me like a bit of both. They're doing some uh, alluvial mining, which means panning for gold in the river, but they're also doing some subsurface mining too. Yes. If anything, I feel like this show doesn't address that procedural as much as it could. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's all there to see. Maybe they're assuming that, you know, we all know how this works. But <laughs> but you know me, I want to see more procedural. You, you are, yes, yes, the mining procedural. I think it's probably fair that they're actually using the actual mining as more of a backdrop because from yeah. what I can tell about the different character sets they're introducing and all of that, they want to make this a more character interaction-driven piece. Mm. Yeah, maybe that's the the way it goes with this. Another theme are the constant language difficulties that people have. And it's not just the obvious. It's not just the police, uh, many of whom are Irish, having trouble with the the names, the Chinese names. It's also people who speak Cantonese not speaking Mandarin and vice versa. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is it. But in a way, it's a little bit like a World War II movie, you know, where the uh, where the Germans all start speaking English. And there is actually a reason for that because the Germans were very polished in their language skills and they like to show them off. Yes. So well, you, yeah. sort of, you can sort of get away with that. And so here it's like, I'll speak English because he doesn't speak Cantonese. Mm. <laughs> so we're using our universal sort of patois to, to get on. <laughs> I think that's all right, actually, but the subtitles are in there too, so it's, it's a bit of everything. I like that they do use some of the language as well. It's not just kind of all English and all kind of wiped over. They do have plenty of interesting interactions where you see how the translation is used to deceive a little and a bit yeah. of the, yeah, stuff like that. So I think that's an important piece too. Really gets the actual feeling that you're in that time and place, yeah. So, okay, we've got a woman who has been foully done to death. Mm-hmm. We have somebody who discovers her body, and Mm -hmm. this is an explosive situation on the goldfields. Yes. Um, Tensions are already high. So you've also got this other element in here too. There is a brotherhood, Mm -hmm. an association, and this is a secret society, but also an association, uh, one of those mutual beneficiary associations. So they help the miners, and imagining that there would probably be a funereal fund that people contribute to and mm-hmm. that would allow their bodies to be taken back home to China oh, uh, if they, a mishap occurred to them or at least maybe their ashes or something. Yep. But anyway, their other pastime is importing opium. We've all got to have a hobby, a side hustle, Rob. I a mean, side hustle. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's theirs. Just so out you- there starting their own business. Can't begrudge them that. Yeah, so it's a little bit like Tong-like, you know, so they're into that sort of kind of a mafia-type thing going on there as well. Yeah, yeah. hands, greasing hands and so on, you know, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, the colonial Australians are so beastly Mm. to the Chinese that you kind of feel 
justified in having something that can be on your side. Yeah, there is that sense they're like, you're coming in, you don't deserve this gold, you're taking these resources, we don't want you here, xenophobia, et cetera, the whole nine yards. And, yeah, yeah, I think already people are coming to the gold fields to strike it rich and they're down on their luck and they're, you know, it's just all this big old pot waiting to boil over. The series does have its own soundtrack. (laughs) I haven't been able to source any of it yet. Could be. It's so fresh. We're right off the bat yeah. on this one. It's, yeah. Well, we're not Marvel here or Disney, so we're not going to have that slick soundtrack package up on iTunes ready to go. No, you know. exactly. I found another track by George Dreyfus. Mm-hmm. This is called New Gold Mountain. Mm-hmm. It is actually performed by the Australian Chinese Ensemble. Oh. So I figured this was the track we should go with. This is Carly Chan, author of The Dark Heavens and Journey to Wudang trilogies, and you're listening to 3 FM. And you were listening there to George Dreyfus's composition, New Gold Mountain, which, of course, is the reference to the Australian diggings, the gold mines of uh-huh. the 19th century. I thought that was entirely appropriate for our discussion yeah. of the series of the same name, <laughs> NGM, <laughs> on SBS On Demand, and it is dropping weekly episodes, uh-huh. four episodes in all. And yeah, which means you can actually watch it on television too, should you? Yeah. Remember that? Free to air television. Bless it. (laughs) Bless it, yeah. All right. Now, we've set up New Gold Mountain quite adequately. It is involving a murder mystery set in the Ballarat diggings in 1857. Mm -hmm. And now, on to the characters. And I actually think it's a pretty rich cast of characters for this one. Yep. Let's start with the head man of the Chinese mining camp, mm-hmm. which is Longwei Xing, and he's played by Yosan An. And he is uh, basically, well, the head man, mm-hmm. and that means that he is collecting taxes yes. for the, as it were, the government of Victoria. Yes. It's on the colony. So there are mining taxes to be paid. There's talk of a, a tax on the Chinese as a body of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also involved with the <laughs> the Brotherhood, the secret society. Yes, he's kind of got fingers in every pie in some ways. He is. He is. An actor called Sam Wang plays his little brother. So, of course, he's, you've got a family connection here as well. Mm-hmm. So he's been in, in Australia for a few years. He knows what's what. He's acting as the liaison with the Chinese community and the man. Yep. And he is actually based on a real historical figure. Yeah. A guy whose name is Fuk Xing. Mm-hmm. And he also came to the goldfields to find his fortune. But the real character ended up being Australia's first Chinese detective. And this cool. was a, a time when there weren't that many detectives in the colony of Victoria. And he actually came out from Melbourne. He lived in Little Bourke Street. Oh, and for, cool. And for 20 years, he was the detective that you called upon if you needed something done in Chinatown mm-hmm. or with the Chinese community. And let's face it, the Mr. Plods of that age, well, you know, they weren't going to be all that good at <laughs> relationships between different cultures, yep. let alone being able to talk to people. So yeah, he also and- acted as an interpreter. Yeah. And so he actually uh, came over from uh, Guangdong through Hong Kong and Singapore, got it South Australia, and it seems to be 
that he did that in order to avoid attacks on Chinese arrivals in Melbourne. And then he walked overland. Oh, my God. The gold fields. He deserves <laughs> so, his own biopic. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that. He's one of those characters who we, we really should know more about. And perhaps that will happen one day in the future, mm. but not today. Instead, we've got his sort of inspirational descendant. <laughs> and Xing is the one who finds the body of the murdered white woman mm-hmm. in this case. And this is going to cause lots of problems for everybody yes. because there are links to her murder to the Chinese encampment. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine how explosive that's going to be. Yes. So the actor, Yoson An, he is a New Zealander born in China mm-hmm. and uh, he's been in Dead Lucky with Rachel Griffiths but we know him here most recently for his role in Mulan. Yes. I had thought I recognised him. And then mm. when I looked him up, I said, oh, of course, yes, you were in Mulan. You were intru- he was an introduced character <laughs> to kind of modernise the Mulan love story. <laughs> yeah, they actually they chopped the musical Mulan character in half, basically. Yes, and they created <laughs> uh, the character that your son Ahn ended up playing in that in that film. So, yes, yeah. I quite liked him, and I like him here. I think he's got the charisma um, to be, because he is kind of one of our real central figures. And he's one of those actors with a disgustingly healthy CV and also a lot of athleticism under his black belt in karate, mm-hmm. uh, kickboxing, ninjutsu, powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting. Oh, it's a shame so, you might not get to show these off in the show unless <laughs> I don't see how they're going to incorporate that. But Yeah, well, if this was your standard um, period show, he'd be running off into a lake to emerge in a clinging shirt. <laughs> <laughs> May still happen. <laughs> Before you can say Mr. Darcy. But anyway, we've also seen him in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Was it Sword of Destiny? Something like that. Mm-hmm. It was the, the sequel, you know, and he played a, a boxer in that one. He was also Major Chen in Mortal Engines. Oh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm, and he was a helicopter pilot in The Meg. I'm not sure if his helicopter got eaten by the shark or not. I'm I sure can't it remember. <laughs> He's actually great in this role. He's got what The Rock would call in Jumanji, smouldering intensity. He does that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got the the presence. You buy him as, as somebody who'd make a good go-between. Yeah. He, he has to think on his feet a lot. Yes, and it sounds stressful. To be honest, from what I saw of his role, I would not want it because you're really trying to keep everyone happy and it's very hard to even keep one sort of camp happy, let alone keep things running smoothly between all these kind of conflicting parties. And he's constantly on foot. (laughs) He's very fit. (laughs) They're always saying, gee, I've had to walk a long way today. And and he's like Seth Bullock in uh, Deadwood. He's always constantly walking around. (laughs) Without quite so much as a grim expression on his face, he's a little bit wry and he's got a good sense of humour. So Xing, I think, is is an excellent character. He is not entirely the agency or the detective agency of this story. There are several people involved with it. Mm -hmm. There is Belle Roberts, the Mm -hmm. widowed wife of the Ballarat Times newspaperman, Mm -hmm. and she's inherited the business. Now, she's played by Alyssa Sutherland. Now, we know her as Queen Aslog in the series Vikings. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And I hate to say this, but <laughs> no, I don't. She shows the same enthusiasm when she's wielding a sword as the queen in Vikings, as when she does a dummy spit and beats up a printing press. Yes, this is kind of her introduction. We get a sense that she's a very uh, hot-headed character. Mm. In fact, dare I say, she's typecast. Ooh. Oh, okay. Oh, yes. I see, I see, I see. <laughs> the printing thing. <laughs> oh, I am, I am a printer's devil. Okay, so she's great in this too. That's who she reminds me of, Alma Garrett from Deadwood, who was also widowed and she ended up inheriting her husband's gold claim. We've seen her in uh, The Devil Wears Prada and in uh, Evil Dead Rise, as well as the Miss TV series. And she is another presence, and I think she's an equal match to Shing in this Mm -hmm. series. And she is the one who's running into a lot of problems as basically a female journalist. Yes. Well, I bet you life's tough for them too at that time. (laughs) Oh, yes, obviously. And she has to deal with a lot of classism too as well because she's not – doing what a woman should be doing, according to everybody else in the time. And she's not the only one either. (laughs) So we do have some colonial Australian characters. Christopher James Baker plays Patrick Thomas, Mm -hmm. an Irish miner. We'll go with that because he's a man of many talents is uh, is Pat (laughs) Thomas. Now, he's got an injured left arm, which is not necessarily suspicious in context of his profession, Mm. but it does sort of raise some flags along the way. It's pretty gnarly looking. Some good SFX on that one. Mm. Yeah, nice makeup work. And he's uh, been in Bendigo. He's travelled to Ballarat, and trouble has followed him. So he's yet another uh, element in the mix here. And he's actually been around a lot, old Christopher James Baker, mm-hmm. in the genre. He was in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., oh. playing a recurring character. He's also in the Stargirl series, playing Brainwave. So, yeah, somebody who we have seen before. I think he's actually a very fiery character too. He's <laughs> always glowering or in unfortunate circumstances a man who's quick with his fists and he has to be Mm -hmm. in this particular environment now look if i were to say that there are actors in new gold mountain who've been in the miss fisher series that's almost like being in doctor who everybody's been in miss fisher series it's true yeah (laughs) so we've got dan spielman playing frederick standish and Mm -hmm. Riss muldoon who used to be in farscape He's playing Commissioner Wright, who does the, you know, he's the guy who sets up the taxes on everybody, and he's a pain. Yeah. Yeah. Let's be honest. (laughs) Yeah. Not Riss. He's a a charming fellow. (laughs) He plays the commissioner with, uh, yes, fervor. Now, there are two other characters who I do want to call out. Mabel Lee plays Zhang Li, Mm -hmm. and she is the Brotherhood's boss's canny and ruthless daughter. Ooh. Mm. I was wondering if she was a bit of a trope. She reminds me of, you know, the, uh, the Fu Manchu's dragon sure. lady daughters. Yeah, yeah. I think she's more complex than that. Mm. But there is that there running and, you know, I just noticed that. As yeah, it's a little bit. It. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She's great. Mm. Mabel mm. is great in the role. I, I totally buy her in it, though. And Leonie Wyman, who is an Indigenous actress, and she plays a character called Hattie, who's a, 
a native healer. Nice. And, okay. And because although there is a fair bit of doctrine going on in this diggings, like there's the the regular colonial doctor, mm-hmm. then there's the Chinese herbalist, mm-hmm. and then there's Hattie. So mm-hmm. actually, they're pretty well they're covered. <laughs> they're pretty well stitched up yeah. for, for medicine. And the actress uh, Leonie has been in Dance Academy and the Black Comedy TV series as well. Oh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> and this is where I thought maybe I have to stop and think about it. There is a tendency in films, as we know, mm. to conjure up the trope of the magic Aborigine. Mm. Yeah. Or indeed, in the case of Asians, the magic Asian. And I'm thinking of Shing's spiritual problems Mm -hmm. with all of the things that are going on because he's not unaffected by them. Yeah. And also Hattie, the indigenous healer, she manifests sort of talents that seem to be, you know, just conveniently excellent. Yeah, we would have liked to see maybe a more nuanced Indigenous character rather than leaning on some pretty well-worn tropes. Yeah. Mm. Okay. At the same time, Mm. they seem magic because they're actually smarter than most of the people around them (laughs) in this context. So Mm. there's that too, you know, just something it raised a little flag in my head as I was going along. All right. So back to the series as such. I think it's fun. Mm. I think it's very workmanlike. A little bit depressing in places. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be, but it's. I did find it to be tough going because I kind of knew the hill we were trudging up because of the themes they were bringing out and the direction we were going. And I could tell we're going to need to have characters that will behave like this and there'll be characters that will behave like this. And it's going to be tough to watch. All of that. That doesn't mean it's not a worthy story or I'm, I'm not really glad they made this series, but uh, for me I was, it was a little bit outside of the realm of what my brain could do <laughs> right now. It's probably just as well that it's four episodes because that actually feels like the right length. Yeah, and I think if they're going to at least reach a point where they can resolve it, that might be really nice that you can get this story arc, go with it, and then actually feel like you can reach the end of this, resolve this storyline. Now, I will say that when you're watching this, do pay attention to it. Pay attention to the expressions that get swapped between, mm. uh, for example, Shing and his um, his right-hand man, the bodyguard. Yeah, uh, yeah, loaded looks, lots of loaded, loaded looks. looks. <laughs> you're thinking, I know what you guys are thinking, and I'm thinking it too. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's actually quite funny. I found this unexpectedly amusing in places because I'm laughing with it with some of the yeah. things that happen. Yeah, it's not all darkness. There is they there is try they're trying to really build a bit of a a whole mm. world and with that comes some light touches. Yeah. Well, it's New Gold Mountain. I will shout out one more person from the cast and crew, mm-hmm. which is Cappy Island, mm-hmm. who did the costumes. Oh, yes. For mm-hmm. it. They're very, very workmanlike <laughs> costumes. Yeah. Uh, they look everything ex- looks great. Yeah. The only problem I had with them, perhaps, is they're not particularly dirty. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. For some of the minor characters, you actually need – I felt like they needed to dirty them down a bit more. Then again, uh, (laughs) my people are well known for being expert launderers, and there would probably – there would 
absolutely certainly be some really good laundries in the yeah, goldfields. Yeah. You are literally only allowed to say that, Rob. I couldn't say that. But, no, I yeah. think that's probably fair that they're probably running a very well-oiled camp. Yeah. And it could be that the it's all set up such that, yeah, they're not, like, rolling around in the dirty old clothes, that they've got a system for all of that stuff. So, Or know? maybe they... When the, maybe they, the uh, the background costumes and stuff, if they, if they hide them from um, wardrobe, <laughs> they have to turn them back in the in the condition. Yeah, they, yeah, in the, they so. can't grubby them up too much. But yeah. in fact, I'm, I'm making way too much of that. Sorry, Gabby. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, and I do think that the the style and production design of the show is such that I really did feel it was it was very good at evoking Ballarat at that time. Yeah. Did you think that the, some of the accents were a little bit? cod you know yes i did i wondered a couple of them i was like are you really pushing the point on this accent a little much but i guess it's all part of it you know like yeah. leaning we'll into him, that we'll give him that look it, it's not a barrel of laughs but it is a solid little series that uh, i think could probably use a little bit more procedural on the mining section of it it's got a lot of moves in its story and i'm not exactly sure where it's all going yeah I haven't really sussed the nature of the mystery yet. Yeah, so it'll be interesting how the, they stick the landing and, and things like yeah. that, I think. so. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. Sometimes it could be fun to not finish a show before we talk about it, you know? I actually think sometimes I, I prefer it because my, my thoughts change over time and sometimes we check back in and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's have a, a track here that I thought would be appropriate in sort of different ways. This is David Bowie's track, Seven Years in Tibet. And, yes, I suppose there's an irony there, given the occupation of that country. And it's in Mandarin. Oh. Yeah. So Bowie did the rendition in Mandarin. So let's get into that without much further ado. This is John English aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction Fantasy and Historical Radio, and we haven't finished yet. No, nor we have. And that was <laughs> David Bowie. Mandarin version of Seven Years in Tibet, which is inspired by a book which I have actually read of that same name. Not it's not called David Bowie, it's called Seven Years in Tibet. Basically, he was quite incensed by the occupation of Tibet, Mr. Bowie was, mm. and decided to do a little song there in Mandarin, which is very ironic when you think about it. Yeah. Mm. So moving along, <laughs> you know when you find a Mavum from the past? Oh. I just found a David Bowie postcard from the 1970s, a French David Bowie postcard. <laughs> nice. Yeah. All right, so I was using that as a bookmark in, and I should call this out because I use this a lot, in the book The Complete David Bowie by Nicholas Pegg. Oh, nice. Which has got pretty much, quite literally, the last word on all of David Bowie's discography. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very useful. All right, Mm. now, we've shouted out about New Gold Mountain today on SBS On Demand and Mm -hmm. live as well. Well, not live, but... uh, (laughs) Free to wear. Free to air, yes. And now we're going to just pay a little bit of a tribute to William Shatner. What this? Uh, the, it's crazy what the world is doing at the moment. What? Yes. So no, we've got a some much needed congrats to give. I believe we have indeed. Yes, he blasted off aboard the Blue Origin Rocket Company's New Shepard spacecraft. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, the art imitating life, imitating art, the whole full circle. Yep. Oh, Denny Crane has hoisted himself into space, not on his own Picard, but aboard a rocket ship. And this mm-hmm. is just, I'm just, my my brain is just shattered by this. It's just resonating backwards and forwards. Of course, he had some crewmates. I mean, what captain would go into space without his stalwart crew? Chris Bosuzan, who is a co-founder of the satellite company Planet Labs. Glenn DeVries, a software executive, and Audrey Powers, who's Blue Origin's vice president of mission and flight operations. And, you know, I mean, jokes aside, I mean, no, we didn't all dress up like the Planet of the Apes monkeys when we come back down to surprise him. <laughs> I would say that's the wrong franchise, except there actually is a crossover comic book called Primate Directive. Oh, really? Where the Star Trek crew meet the apes from Planet of the Apes. <laughs> I love comic books. They're so, they're so wild. <laughs> Anything goes. Yeah, well, it would not be the first time that, uh, Captain Kirk had boldly gone where somebody had gone before. It just that's how it works in Star Trek, and I think Chris uh, Boswizen is actually an Australian. Oh. I think he's uh, he was a NASA engineer, mm-hmm. so he gets for the rest of his life to say "Beam me up, Aussie," <laughs> as the engineer, or at least one of the engineers on the flight. So. You know, mine comprehensively boggled. Actually, I did that a little bit shattery, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> and then there was the the video that they shot. I mean, of course, there's lots of video. Yeah. For this, it's they're it's, not going to uh, leave no footage of something like this. No. And when he's on back on the ground and uh, and basically gushing yeah. to Jeff Bezos about the flight and about the fragility of Earth when seen from that high and the thinness of the atmosphere that keeps us all alive and and that kind of thing, which he will have talked about dozens of times in his career, whether it's on Star Trek itself or narrating documentaries because he's done a lot of those too. And it's obviously something he's thought about deeply, and he's an old hammersaurus, basically, and I would expect him to have done some lines for himself, but the fact that he just falls all over himself with it when he comes out of it, it's great. I mean, what an experience, and it's kind of nice to see that anyone can be kind of humbled by something like that, you know, because yeah. he's got a big he's got a big ego, right? But the fact that he, yeah, came back and was just like, you know, just so just- overexcited is, is kind of nice. Yeah. On the other hand, for you know, it's Captain Kirk. It's like this is Tuesday. You know, <laughs> I just thought that was so incredible. Okay, I'm I'm geeking out over it too. But I mean, when you think about it, William Shatner playing the role of Captain Kirk over the years has inspired so many people to enter STEM fields yeah. like Mister Scott and Doctor McCoy and Lieutenant Uhura and the. All of the other people, Sulu and Chekhov, all that bridge crew and everybody else in the show, there have been so many inspirations taken from that. I think he deserves it. Yeah. Also, he did make the point that it's important to do this sort of thing because these are baby steps. I think he said that to Prince Andrew in a reply to something. You know, (laughs) it's like, did we miss something? Is there going to be a duel between a Canadian Commonwealth citizen and (laughs) (laughs) – Oh, dear. Anyway, 
uh, we'll, we'll go on from that. And some of the other things he said were quite pertinent. It's very important to get out in space to uplift humanity, to provide inspiration, to get polluting industries off Earth perhaps someday, mm. to, to take advantage of solar power from orbit. It's, and- it's very interesting, I think, because there's two minds about that because I know there's some people who are like Earth is kind of a bit of a mess right now. And yet we have billionaires that are vying to, you know, who's got the biggest rocket to go into space. And, you know, they have this money because they take advantage of their workers and things. It's very interesting, I think, that I, I always I love the idea of space as a, a frontier of hope and possibility as well. But I do think there's a bit of cynicism from my end that comes from it as well in that it's billionaires playing in space while there's a lot of things that that money could go towards on Earth. I don't know. Am I a bitter old lady now? <laughs> well, I'm, you know, I'm a space hipster, so I'm a space booster. And I look at it in a couple of ways. They're billionaires. They do have a lot of money and they got it from us, basically. Let's, let's be honest. I don't think it would make a whole lot of difference, the money they're spending on their space adventures back mm. on Earth in the long run. And I just say this, somewhere out there in space, there's likely a comet or an asteroid with Earth's name on it. If the price is a few trillion dollars thrown into space as opposed to blowing it on submarines or something like that on on Earth, I think it's probably well worth the candle because one of those hits the Earth at an extinction-level event impact and it's over. Yeah. So if that's what it takes, if it takes space tourism to be part of a robust and expansive space program, which the dinosaurs lacked. I get, yeah. I guess it's the privatization element as well. Like I'm all for a robust space program, but I'd love it if it was something more at least, I mean, not the governments are perfect, But not the governments, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. The space race is this whole socio-political military thing anyway. You're right, you're right. There's There's no real perfect answer, is there? And that's not, who am I to be like, I would spend money better if I was a billionaire. Who knows? I probably did the same stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So whatever I think of their workplace practices or whatever, Mm. Elon Musk has the biggest rocket, by the way. Um, (laughs) He would. God, that dude. (laughs) So, yeah, you know, but that's the other side of it. But I'm totally up with having William Shatner go up and and, and have his. Yeah, no, for sure. Remember what the scientist said in contact when she went into space and when she went through everything. She said they should have, no words, they should have sent a poet. Hmm. Now, William Shatner is at least an artist, so I felt that, that connection there. Anyway. <laughs> We've gone it. on a real, sorry, I just opened up a whole, like, discussion yeah. for us. But, no, yeah. it's, it's something I've been thinking about, but, no. Yeah, we opened up the tin can. Yeah, major- exactly. Of, of Major Tom, or at least Major Jim. All right, now that's about it for Zero G for today, and we're going to go out with a track from Mr. Shatner, of course, because he is one of those actors who has an ha- um, singing ha- career as well. <laughs> yes, has a discography, often lampooned, but as they say, he's the one doing this. Beam Me Up is the track. William Shatner and Jeff Cook from his album Why Not Me. And I think this actually kind of jauntily sums up the whole thing, Mm. really. All right. Well, thank you to Kayla Larson, our podcaster. Joe Brunetic is coming up next with Astral Glamour. And 
until next week, thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.